From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. Today, we bring together two forces in their respective fields to discuss the impact of interior design on mental health and what to expect in the future of where we go to work and heal. I am joined by design legend at HOK, Pam Light, and Dr. Scott Zeller, vice president and leading psychiatrist at Vituity in San Francisco. So, Doug, I was listening to a conversation Scott was having on mental health on one of our Pulse seminars that we did last month, and I was intrigued by his connection with mental health in the space. I think you probably know that HOK has been doing a number of presentations on um, uh, neurodiversity and how we're looking at spaces and how they can support people that are on different spectrums, um, whether they are, quote, considered mentally ill or whether they are just more or less um, what we used to call introverts or extroverts or um, have attention deficit disorders or have something else going on. The, The space itself as Scott was saying, makes such a huge difference in how comfortable people feel in it, therefore how well they respond to it. And we find not just people that are have a clinical concern that would be in Scott's preview, but this is also just the general public, um, because I know, <laughs> and you probably know lots of people that are considered normal, but you might not think they were totally normal the way you're normal. And then probably a lot of people that wouldn't think we were necessarily normal the way they think is normal. And so everybody feels different in space. We used to talk about some people needed more heads down time, some people needed more collaborative time. Um, the studies we've been doing over the last two years on neurodiversity are looking at the way people are stimulated in space. Some people need more, some people need less. How do we make space more comfortable for people? I think the general training we've had on daylighting and color theory and biophilia and the things that we all know help people feel nurtured and actually more healthy and spaces is now starting to coalesce together. Um, I was particularly interested, Scott, when you were talking about the, the jump in mental illness since COVID. It's people are so much more stressed now that they're really um, finding that things that might not have bothered them before are bothering them now. So we have to be even more careful, or as case sergeants sometimes says we need a heightened sensitivity to the spaces we're putting people into. Um, Scott, in particular, I loved the one, probably not loved is a bad word, but you were talking about when people come into an emergency clinic, they may just have high anxiety, but if you stick them in a little white room and tell them not to go anywhere and stay still, they're going to get up and move. And then people are going to come in and they're going to, you know, put their arms around them and they're going to buckle them up for their quote own safety and calm them down with shots and maybe even then commit them. And it's such a shame that all that has to happen because the space was not designed properly for what they're going through. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And one that we really reiterate on working with emergency departments around the country is that the emergency department itself can often be very disruptive and frightening for somebody in a mental health crisis. 
uh, and and, and the, the exact things that you say, uh, where where people are confined to a very small space, usually with a security guard or a sitter, and if they do so much as sit up, somebody calls out for security, and and then some of those bad things happen, like coercive treatments and forceful injections and physical restraints. <laughs> Uh, when really all somebody wanted was a chance not to feel claustrophobic and not to feel frightened. You know, you've already mm -hmm. got a mm -hmm. very crowded environment where there's strange noises and lights and a lot of uniform personnel rushing around and somebody just wants to take a little walk to kind of get some of the pressure off and there's no opportunity for them to do so. So finding uh, you know, opportunities to create areas with more space where people are encouraged to move around if they wish and where they can feel more comfortable is going to just pay back enormously in terms of the results that we see with our patients. Okay, so as you guys are talking about feeling frightened, I'm imagining that person that may have already had some sort of a phobia of germs that's now re-entering the office. I mean, are you guys discussing how you plan to cater to the feeling of safety in the office or the workplace? Is this something you're talking about? Well, right now, um, Doug, we're spending a lot of time thinking about what new space should look like, um, both, both before and after vaccine. Um, so the ability to clean the space, have it uncluttered, have clean desks, um, have less things that we would have called making space feel homey in the past, like throws and throw pillows and accessories set around. Suddenly, those need to be picked up and moved so that the cleaning crew can really come in and clean. So we are worried that spaces will become sterile, like you were saying, and that's not good for the way people need to feel going back into the space. So, um, and acoustics could get worse if people are, are staying away from fabrics and going to more hard surfaces. So we're looking at what can we do on the walls and in the ceiling and um, what other acoustical properties we can put in or textures or color changes so that spaces still feel comfortable and human um, and not sterile, but yet we're still protecting them. Uh, you know, one thing I was going to say is that that's something we've done in some of our, so we've been really uh, helping to create a lot of specialized uh, emergency psychiatric units in hospitals around the country called EMPATH units, which is an acronym that stands for Emergency Psychiatry Assessment, Treatment, and Healing Unit. Uh, and, and these units, which are for the patients who traditionally would have been stuck in ERs, sometimes for days waiting for transfer to an inpatient psychiatric facility are more along the lines of what we were describing, where they're comfortable and there's more space. And we find that just getting people out of the ERs means far less need for restraints, coercive treatments, forcible injections, uh, the far fewer assaults and, and much better outcomes in you know, 75% or higher of the people who would have gone to an inpatient unit are actually able to get better and be discharged in less than 24 hours. And some of what Pam was just talking about in terms of the reimagining uh, can be things like color, like uh, you know, where you don't have to worry about throw pillows or anything that you'd need to disinfect, but what you can do actually just with that physical plant to make things seem that much nicer without necessarily having to make it too much like a, like a rumpus room. Uh, and and <laughs> right. one, of the, one of the more simple things that we found, which is just really astounding is you know, the typical fluorescent light fixtures in the ceiling, which, uh, you know, are, are kind of depressing if you just look at them, for very inexpensive, you can replace that uh, that standard kind of uh, beige opaque cover with 
uh, something that looks like blue sky with white puffy clouds and put those at spots in the ceiling and it almost makes it look like you've got sunroofs all through that. And just that illusion of there being open sky above you tends to make it seem like a much roomier and, and more comfortable space. And that's you know a very inexpensive thing and really doesn't involve anything that people are touching. And it's something that just makes it feel like a much better uh, environment to be in. And just one of those little tiny things that you can do that, that really changes the way a place feels. Yeah, and I think yeah. one thing that Scott brought up um, that's we we are we are trying to not make wholesale changes in spaces. In other words, we're not we're trying not to tell people throw everything away and start over again and respace everything. And it's really be thoughtful about what's there, space it as you can, add add color paint. I mean, those are simple things. Put plants in the room. These are all things that we know increase people's health and and increase their feeling of well being. Um, so, I mean, Sally Augustine's book, Place Advantage, is, is really great. It gets into deep color theory and views, um, plants, biophilias, as well as, you know, even um, like graphics, you know, um, like imagine in your, you're in a hospital, how difficult it is when you're under stress to, to manage walking through it with all the signage saying exit, turn here, radiology here sorting your way through it and we think now i've been hearing horror stories of people walking into high rises where there's signs everywhere step here don't step here don't touch this do touch this put on your mask here it's becoming graphic chaos which is making people even more nervous about how they're approaching space so some logic to it and hierarchy um and importance will be really important in how we move forward and, and make people feel comfortable like instead of having the nurses separated from the, the, the patients by the bulletproof plexiglass fishbowl, for example, moving to more open spaces where people don't feel like they have to shout uh, or start a fight to even be noticed by the staff, having their more interaction. And you can still be separated and you can still have uh, plexiglass for protection from infection, but as long as it's uh, people feel that you're accessible, and uh, kind of along those same lines too, not a hundred signs everywhere telling you what you can or can't do. I have a particular dislike of a sign I see sometimes in hospitals when you walk in the door that's saying, uh, you know, violence is not tolerated here and, and you will immediately be, uh, you know, penalized or, or, or prosecuted if you have any violent behavior on in here. And my first thing when I see a sign like that is not, oh, I better not be violent. It's wow, this must be a pretty violent place if they had to put up a sign like that. And I think that a lot of people see something like that and makes them more frightened as opposed to thinking, oh gosh, they're serious about keeping us safe. So I think there's even different ways you can use signage to be more supportive rather than uh, dogmatic and frightening. Uh, so I agree completely with what Pam was just saying. Hmm. It's almost like uh, when, uh, when I took my kids uh, on their first airplane ride and... Uh, you know, they're pulling out all the stuff in front of them. And then here's the, here's the instruction manual for when the plane crashes in water, you know, all the stuff you need to do. Kids are like, wait, wait a minute, this plane could crash in water? And it's like, no, it is funny where your mind goes if there's not a lot of context or if it's not so thoughtful. Um, that's interesting. I, I would love to then hear um, a little bit about change because uh, we know, I mean, we're, we're, we're citing change now. I mean, you're citing discoveries on how uh, 
you know, simply changing the graphics on a ceiling um, could could uh, change the way we feel. There's new discovery all the time, and it feels like now more than ever, you know, we're learning stuff just in one month's time. This accelerated pace of change, what does this mean uh, to you guys, to your professions? Well, I, I think, Scott, um, I'll... I'll take this one for a minute. The um, one thing that we are seeing is that when people are exposed to change like we have now, they are ready to accept other changes. Their, their mind has already been open. They're already aware. It's not like, oh, one day, it's the next day, it's the next day, and somebody brings up something, and you're like, oh, yeah, well, whatever, and then you don't go that way. It's like, okay, if everything's changing, what else is going on? So it's really an opportune time, and, and this is one of the conversations that we're having with some of our clients is, yes, it's, it's difficult now. People had to go home with very short notice. Yes, everything had to come together quickly, including technology to start making it work, but amazingly, it is working. We're, we're seeing studies that we've got. Um, we just did one um, across globally, um, HOK clients, and between 80 and 85% people feel that it, they have been more productive now being at home. And part of that, we all think is, you know, part of it is it's, it's different. So people are more aware, they're paying more attention. Adrenaline is up, so they're focusing. People are obviously worried about their jobs. They want to do a good job. And, and people really can't go anywhere else, right? You were sitting at home anyway. Um, but all those things coming together make it a really opportune time for us to take a step back and say, okay, if we were creating the office knowing what we know now, having the tools that we know now that you can work from home, would we have designed it the way we did? Would we have put people in spaces that are, you know, 100 square foot per person? Um, density is one of the things I've heard Scott speak to. Um, makes you feel uncomfortable if there are a lot of people in the space and you know you're trying to get something done, or even if you're not, it's just that crowd when you're not um, not needing to be around it every day. So if we can take a step back and really start crafting space for what it should and could be, um, like Ryan said um, on your talk last week, Doug, which I thought was great. You know, maybe it's a place people come in and celebrate being together. You know, maybe it's if you want to have heads down, um, which we're showing is is um, very specifically more productive at home. Of course, everybody's got their own private office, or most people do. And when you're coming together, it's to socialize, it's to collaborate on something you need to do together, and it's because you want to come in. It it changes the the furniture mix. It changes the even the colors in the space. Um, we could make them more vibrant to um, enhance activity. Uh, we still want to have quiet spaces so people can get away for those who like some activity but can't handle it all the time. We're really talking a lot about activity-based work and neighborhood choice environments so that we don't come back to a one-to-one -one ratio. We don't come back to um, just tables everywhere. We don't come back to high panels everywhere. We really come back to a space that feels more like the reason that we came into the office. So those are the deep discussions we're having now with clients. When, when people do come in, what is now their purpose? And what can we do to support that? 
Yeah, I would also add on to that. The, the point that you made was excellent about people accepting change. There has been such dramatic change over the last few months that I think people are far more amenable to uh, more change uh, at the at the moment just because they're, they're so used to everything changing. And now it does give you that opportunity to say, what was not working before and, and how can we do this better? While we have this period of time where, where we're embracing doing things differently, maybe we can really think about it and not just saying, well, that's the way we've always done things. So that's the way we should continue to do it but actually really take a hard look at how everything has been working and if we can do it better. And so not just try to do things piecemeal, but make some whole scale change while there is uh, the opportunity to do so and really see how things work out. And so it's been very refreshing in that way. Even as you were, you were talking about um, what people were kind of craving in the office before and how we've made some slight evolutions, I'm thinking back to this is probably about four years ago there was this big epiphany. We were, we were, you know, probably half a decade into benching at that point. And all of a sudden, it was like somebody said, hey, wait a minute, people need to focus. And then uh, there was that whole big movement. It was like, oh, yeah. And everybody's launching the tiny pods and we're trying to get people to focus. Like, where was the person that just would raise their hand and say, hey, just go home. <laughs> just go home and work. You can focus there. And uh, it was like nobody said that. But ultimately, it kind of it's almost like the answer was right in front of us in a way. Yeah, uh, because it wasn't framed in a way that we could understand it. And, and I do think that people were still in the frame of mind. I don't know if I can trust my workers, you know, if I don't, if I can't see them every day or how can I easily communicate to them <clears throat> what needs to get done and how can I review their work and how can I, you know, mentor them if they're not there and how can I even give them a review on how they're doing if I'm not seeing them. And, and I think because, because we have the technology we have today that we can actually see people's face and we can, everybody has now the communication or most people do to communicate with anybody that they need to in their office during a day. We now have the tools and we've now had the big social experiment that shows it can work <laughs> to then move forward on it. Right, right. My organization, uh, which has a lot of employees and we do have a centralized office that I actually had in my own office in until July of last year, so long before all the COVID issues started. Uh, so many of our meetings started to be on Zoom, like we're talking on right now, that uh, it, people started coming into the office uh, less and less to the <laughs> point where the, the company said, you know, we can actually get by without one of these floors that we have and actually eliminated it, saving the company tons and tons of money and yet actually having much better turnout at meetings because everybody could just switch on their computer and, and make sure they're at a meeting as opposed to getting 50% turnout when we were all supposed to be in the office. So exactly what you were just saying, I, I think that, that this was something that was already underway and just the last few months has really pushed the envelope on, on, on what's possible. So I, I am hopeful for a richer, more diverse experience in the office, very culture-centered, collaboration-centered, uh, with the opportunity to work and focus from home as you need. Um, but I, I, am, I am curious, too, because I know that um, this major change in kind of place 
and behavior that we've all been forced to go through could have some lasting impacts. I'm curious to know from you guys' perspective, if, if, if you can project forward and imagine what is, is there some sort of negative impact or positive impact? What is the impact of, of this massive work from home movement when it comes to mental health? The incidental learning, when one of the things that was the positive on the open office is you could overhear somebody having a conversation, you could learn something new was coming on, or you could understand, oh, that's a better way for me to deal with a conflict like that when I have one in the future. Um, and as Scott said, that incidentally running into somebody when you're going to get a cup of coffee and starting up a conversation on a subject maybe they hadn't thought about or you hadn't thought about or wouldn't have been worth setting up a meeting for, but then triggered something else that really led to something more meaningful in the conversation. Um, we're worried about losing that. We're worried about losing mentoring. Um, we, we will need to make it more formal. Um, we're worried about um, dilution of culture. If people aren't in enough to continue culture, uh, we're worried about loyalty. Um, several studies say you stay often at jobs uh, because your friends are there. So if your friends are not there, or as Scott said, you're not as social as you were before with those friends, that, that changes company loyalty. So all of those will have to be looked at in a larger picture um, when we start deciding work from home, what percent of a day is that? And do you have people that come in and it's mandatory that at least everybody has to come in sometimes. Um, maybe not every week, but depending on their circumstances, but enough to make sure that camaraderie is still there and you haven't lost it. Right. Right. I, I can, uh, I can see that. And I actually think that's something that's gone unmentioned lately. I think people have really focused on uh, some of the emotional human connection related cravings that we have but uh when it comes to learning this idea of incidental learning i mean mm -hmm. just reflect back on your own life that's where all the real great learning happened through observation and being around or the ones people. that i cared more about <laughs> than studying right. in a classroom right <laughs> right that that was where you really learned um probably the best the best qualities and things that you have in yourself came from that and not from a book right right um, right Pretty interesting. Anything that will surprise us going forward two, three, four, five years from now um, that we're maybe we're not thinking about that we're going to see? So this is, a, I'll, I'll just throw this out here. It's something I've been thinking about recently, and it's more along the lines of what you were all talking about, about office design of the future. Given that, uh, you know, so much of what we would be doing in our cubicle or our small closed office or something like that is something that now can be done by home. Would it make more sense for offices of the future to be more designed around group things and collaborations and spaces where people are all working together for certain times during the week, doing the things that they can't do uh, from home, doing things that wouldn't, uh, you know, formerly would have been in a cubicle that, that doesn't make any sense to have in the office anymore. So maybe you have these spaces really designed for bigger events and for groups and for that mentoring and doing things uh, where everybody's in the room and speaking up as opposed to trying to design a space for how many people can we fit into where they each get their little spot where they can put up a picture of their kids and, and a funny sign. Yeah, Scott, I, I do think that we're going to stay, 
start pretty strongly steering away to what we use, what we call one-to-one ratios in, in our industry, which is there is a desk for every person. So you don't need that anymore. If, you know, 30% of the people are coming in at a time, you certainly can have fewer desks, but maybe you have more other spaces that are more meaningful to them and, and what they need to do when they come in. What are people not talking about right now that we should be talking about? Uh, whether it's workplace or health, um, hospitals, uh, what is it in your mind? It's uh, always kind of uh, hard to come up with the uh, uh, answering something that's absent and, and what, what, is, what is really missing. Uh, I, I think right now it's uh, what we've really been seeing is the concern was in using things like telemedicine was how accepting are patients going to be of, of interacting with their provider, their physician over video as opposed to being in person. And what's been really surprising is how well accepted it is. In fact, many patients actually feel it's preferable um, so that they can set up an appointment with their doctor and know, okay, 2.30 today, I need to be on my computer and they don't have to worry about what time they have to drive down there and if they're gonna find a parking space and, and all that kind of stress that goes on around that. So I think that uh, although there's certainly been a lot of talk about the benefits of telemedicine, uh, I think there was still an assumption that once things got back to quote unquote normal, that we'd be doing more uh, in-person medical processes, but I think we're going to be seeing in the future a lot more telemedicine. It's actually going to stick and patients are going to prefer that. The, the thing that nobody's been talking about is how well accepted this is and how patients really like it far more than anybody ever imagined. And the idea that this is going to continue will, will also have a lot, of, uh, a lot of change. And when you're talking about liability, you know, if you've got a doctor's office with a waiting room where there's a lot of people coming in with different kinds of diseases, some of them infectious, that's kind of a petri dish, just the waiting room for things to uh, have bad outcomes. There's there's a whole uh, concept of infectious disease known as nosocomial diseases, which is diseases that you catch in a medical setting because of the presence of other uh, patients with illnesses there, uh, you know, especially in hospitals. So the idea that we can do a lot more of this within the safety of your home is, is probably going to be changing a lot of the way that we approach medicine in general. And I don't see us going back. I think this is just going to flourish more and it's, it's gonna be up to uh, the uh, regulators and, and whatnot to facilitate more of this rather than uh, what it was prior to COVID where COVID allowed for a lot of expansion of telemedicine onto new platforms that hadn't been permitted before. But the, uh, and billing was, was, was extremely limited. In fact, most telemedicine billing under Medicare, you had to be in some rural setting that was 100 miles away from the nearest hospital or something like that before they'd even reimburse you. Now they'll reimburse across the board and there's a lot of effort going into, well, there's no reason to go back. Let, let's make sure we continue these reimbursements. There's a big debate about it, but I'm really hopeful that they'll continue it because it doesn't have to be 100 miles away from uh, you know, in some remote rural setting, you can be in a big city and just getting, you know, 12 blocks across town can take a really long time, depending on traffic and, and what else is going on. So the ability to do this uh, on-demand telemedicine is uh, is something that really needs to continue, and I'm hopeful that that uh, legislators and uh, policymakers are going to recognize that and not try to push it backwards. 
Thank you, Scott and Pam, for joining us today and sharing your insights. There is no question, most of the places we go to gather, heal, and learn will need some rethinking. It's time to dig in, design, and get to work because the stakes are high. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at OFS.com backslash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.